Did it land in the cookies? Mm-mm. In 1438, a fairly incompetent knight named Pierre Jacquet, who went by the moniker Prince, was afraid to mount his own horse, believing he might be thrown and killed. Uh, so that just gives you a sense of the personality of yeah, that's pretty bad. Prince Some A. Days you just think your horse is going to kill you. Oh, Prince every day. A. He thought that every day. Every day. One hundred percent of the days. So did he just walk places? I'd be scared to get on a horse. Just generally. Yeah. Well, I've you'd never make a good Prince A. Oh. So he made a a handsome offer to a pair of peasants in Nantes. He wanted to employ their 14-year-old son, Jean Hubert, a remarkably beautiful young man. Mm. If if that phrase makes you uncomfortable, we're going to be hearing it a lot today. Just so you know. Like how many times? Like, I think maybe double digits. We might hit 10 times of hearing about remarkably beautiful young French boys. I don't like that. Anyway, he employed him as his page. (laughs) The parents, uh, Jean and Nicole, agreed, but eight days later, they were dissatisfied with the way young Jean was being lodged, their beautiful young son. And mm. Prince was talking about not keeping him on as his retainer, which was the goal all along, to get a, a nice noble lord with a weird name to keep him as a retainer. The parents asked to have the boy back so they could return him to school, but Prince A was a herald for the wealthy and famous nobleman Gilles de Ray. A hero of the Siege of Orléans, where de Ray had fought alongside the legendary Joan of Arc. Prince had passed the lad onto de Ray's page, Henriette Griart. Griart brought him to the Hotel de la Suze, where he introduced him to another member of the great Lord de Ray's retinue, a Scotsman named Spadine, which is the Frankification of Spalding. So his name was Spalding, but the French called him Spadine. There you go, that's a word. word. new word for you to, to use. On your friends, you can frankify them. You've been frankified. Yeah. Uh, so basically, this boy's just been passed around a bunch of different ways, and now he's wound up with this Scotsman who's part of DeRay's inner circle. Sounds but, like my life story. Right. You were trafficked? And passed around. He's not been trafficked <laughs> per se yet. That's coming. I mean, this How? is kind of the, the definition of human trafficking. But it's yeah. good. It's, it's okay. It's a medieval thing. So it's we're, okay. So in, it in medieval times, trafficking was okay. Well, you would get the French boy, and you were going to raise him up to be a knight. The beautiful How French boy, Rob. How old is this boy? He's be- they're all, there's many beautiful French boys. Is this boys. a boy like a 13-year-old or yeah, a 17-year-old? Yeah, yeah, He's 14, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful 14-year-old boy. Oh. Oh. Spadine introduced the young valet to the great lord himself, Gilles Duray, and promised to make him Duray's own page, replacing his current page, Poitou, who he said was planning to retire and return home soon. So, cool. This kid is, mm-hmm. I know you think he's being trafficked, but he's, he's sort of being traded up. So yeah. he's, he started with this little Prince A guy who's afraid to get on his horse, but now he's about to become this wealthy lord's page, personal climbing page. Climbing the ladder. Just, so the it's ladder. semi-trafficking. In the chambers of the great lord, the valet enjoyed white wine and received a loaf of bread baked especially for him, which the young Jean gave to his mother. Spadine told the mother that the great lord de Ray had taken a shine to the boy and asked the mother if the young boy could stay and ride with them the next day. Okay, wait one nope. second. Ride? No. Nope. Okay. Nope. This just sounds worse. Ride, worse ride a horse. Go- nope. He's riding a horse so far. Mm. All right. At least this lord. I promise you that this horse. is going to get really gross, but it hasn't yet. It's okay. leading up to it. Yeah, it is. I know. You're anticipating. Beautiful young you're boy. Anticipating the grossness. And asks. He's, he's taken a shining to him. She, yeah, yeah, he's taken a shine to, like the, to the lad. Suspicious uh, word choice. Anyone she, that calls a boy a lad I don't know if already. He said <laughs> I'm saying shine. She agreed, uh, and the mother and child said a long goodbye. 
Two weeks later, the Scotsman's Badin sent for the elder Jean, father to the young page, Jean, and asked him what had become of the boy. So now it's the Scotsman asking the dad, hey, remember how I gave your son to Lord DeRay? How did that turn out for him? It's really comforting. And the father was baffled, right? Because he had given the boy to the Scotsman. Oh. So, so he's like, wait, you don't, you don't know where he is? Shouldn't you know? Why are you, why are you asking me where he is? The father went to the other men of DeRay's entourage, begging to know what had become of his kid. They could only say that the last they saw of him, he'd been led off by the Scotsman Spadine. Oh, no. Mm, can't trust Scotsman. Finally. Oh, we love our Scott listeners out there, and I trust you if John doesn't. Finally, desperate, the father went to the feckless warrior Prince A. Feckless? He's feckless. What does that mean? He's a, he's a dick. Ah. Oh. Uh. He's a dick who's afraid of horses. He's a fright, frightened, so a feckless frightened dick. little, feckless, a frightened dick. F- pricky dick. You should have, he says, so the father said, you should have looked out for my boy. We put him in your care. But Prince A was nonplussed, also feckless. He said, I left him in the care of one of the best and finest men in all of France, meaning Lord de Ray. What more could you ask of me? The young valet Jean, as you have all anticipated, was never heard from again. Oh. Yep. Today, we're exploring the horrific and strange story of one of history's most notorious killers, the medieval French lord Gilles de Ray. History has seen a lot of murderers through the centuries, but what makes Gilles stand out is the potential number of his victims, more than a hundred. Okay. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of victims. Wow. That's a lot. For one they were guy. all like, it's like children ish, right? Impressive. They, mostly. well, we're good there. <laughs> but yes, mostly children. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Lucy. They were all children. You're right. 100% children. 100% oh. of the 100 He killed children were children. W- more than 100 children. But like he did other things too. How did he have the time for that? That's yeah. a full time job. We'll get there. Man's rich. He uh, he wants. So it's not only, though, that he killed 100 children, it's how he killed them. Uh-huh. God. Which we're not ready for just yet. We're going to have to lead up to that. Lord DeRay falls under the purview of our podcast because according to his own occult confession, when he was tried and ultimately hanged for these crimes, the child murders had been committed, at least in part, as a sacrifice intended to conjure and appease a demon. All right. My name is Rob Thompson. <laughs> I am the supreme hierophant and leader of our secret order of alchemical actors. I am uh, joined today by a regular on the podcast who who brings us the Catholic voice on on all Catholic issues, so we need her whenever we drop into the medieval world. We're very (laughs) grateful to have uh, Riley Claxton sitting across from me here. Hi. Uh, and uh, Lucy Bond, this is, I believe, her second episode in discussion, but we've been hearing from her quite a bit. We just heard from uh, her acting in our very Poe Halloween. Lucy, welcome back. Thank you. She just waved, for the record. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and John Cook, uh, sitting next to me on the right here. John, this is your first episode in discussion. That's right. John expressed, um, John has been joining us uh, in various capacities, voicing many characters, but John expressed particular interest in Gilles de Ray to me. Yes. Yes, oh. he's got strong feelings about Gilles. Mm. That man is quite the Frenchman. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, so uh, let's let's get down to it. So we've got some relatively inexperienced discussants here. Let's see how this goes. Uh, this, friends, is Occult Confessions. We, the members of, of the, the Secret, Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Sort of like a train that ran Lucy over. A little bit. But just kept going. I got it. I got the first part. <laughs> is that a euphemism Because he for said it. <laughs> Brienne is also uh, sitting with us. She's going to do our brief history today, but she's going to... Uh, remain uh, mostly silent because Brienne is going to be a key player in our, our Crowley episode. This is really difficult for me. Yeah, she it's going to be hand gestures. Hand <laughs> gestures at us as, as we're, we're recording all just here. avoiding eye contact. Yeah, I just kind of. I have so many out. controversial things to say, so many metal moments, and it's only been like five minutes. But I can already feel as we're heading into this incredibly, like probably the most disturbing episode of our Black Magic series, which is the most disturbing series of this year. That you guys are going to be really rough. On our listeners here, our, uh, <laughs> we're gonna try to right, offend Rob. every I, single one of you personally. I can feel John already celebrating this murderous pedophile. And you already <laughs> insulted two different countries. Scott's it's a good and the thing I'm not on this yeah. episode because. So, so I wanted to, to tell you guys, my my doula when we had uh, when we had Corinne over the summer, my doula actually listens to the podcast and. Um, uh, she, like I, I told her that we had the podcast and she's interested in, in things occult. Um, and you know, shout out to Stephanie out there. Uh, and she, she was like, Rob, uh, I, I love the podcast, but your students, man. <laughs> they, they are kind of scary. <laughs> so uh, I guess this is our warning. Uh, this is the first of several warnings. Uh, the discussants here may frighten you, but uh, they might not believe all the things they say in the that, context of this don't. episode. Last this episode is purely for entertainment purposes. We're, I mean, all we're, we're not nearly actors. as scary as you are. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's do a little bit of business before we uh, get to medieval France. Uh, we want to send some words of thanks out to uh, three people. Michael in Sydney, who took a moment to let us know how inspiring he found our show so far. We really, really appreciate that. Thanks, Michael. Mate. <laughs> thanks, mate. Uh, and, okay, now this is a tough one. Uh, we just got a, a nice five-star review on iTunes from CCC Jr. Are you okay? Hid Hidgerg, CCC Junior. We're so very grateful uh, for your for your for your comment and your username. And we love this user. Yes, we we we're kidding here, but we love this username. We love the opportunity to attempt to pronounce it. Uh, and our new patron, John, uh, who joined the top tier of our Patreon friends, John. We are hard at work creating some original content for you um, and our other small but mighty crew of patrons, and we're so very grateful to have your vote of support and confidence, and you, re- you left us a really incredible and encouraging message, and uh, we're just we're so appreciative of that, John. All right, thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. John. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a different John, oh. although... <laughs> we're appreciative of you, too. We also love you, John. I actually this is a you. new John. Just two Johns. Two whole Johns. Uh, my whole approach to—it's <laughs> never, it's never enough Johns. My whole oh. approach to these episodes uh, is for us to be having a conversation about big and important and interesting themes uh, related to things supernatural and religious, with uh, our alchemical actors here in the room, but also with our listeners, like Michael and Hudgerd. 
and mm-hmm. and John. Uh, <laughs> we, we know we've got a quirky and eccentric sort of podcast going on here. Uh, so the fact that we can connect with, with you guys and, and all of you guys out there sharing in these stories, guys and, and gals, is especially meaningful and I hope makes our listeners feel like we're part of a unique uh, community of intellectually curious supernatural enthusiasts. I feel a lot of love right now. My new Instagram bio. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Okay, and uh, that's that. Let's get to the disclaimer, shall we? Before we begin, I'd like to suggest that any listeners who are new to the podcast or have only listened to this most recent season take a look back to the second episode from our second season of the Lady Magic series. That's 2.2, and the subject is Joan of Arc. And this, I think, is is nice prep for the discussion we're going to have today. Although, I think you could listen to this one first and then go back to Joan of Arc, but that'll give you the full picture of everything that's going on with uh, Gilles Deray and Joan at this Mm -hmm. moment. Uh, a second note, uh, needless to say, given the crimes DeRay is accused of, murdering children and doing horrible things to them, we do not recommend this episode for listeners under the age of 13, and perhaps even in the vicinity of 13. This is adult material, and uh, so p- put in the headphones, adults. No beautiful French boys are allowed to listen to this episode. <laughs> Only beautiful French adults. Mm. Or any nationality. Right, Scots adults, Australian adults. American adults, Eh. Canadian adults, Mm. so many adults. But adults is the point we're trying to make. Okay, let's podcast, shall we? Gilles Duray had two major claims to fame, the mass murder of children that I just mentioned and his ties to Joan the Maid, patron saint of France and hero of Orléans. Chronologically, the two did not overlap. His time in the army alongside Joan represented his glory days. The child murdering came during the period of his decline when he had spent much of his vast fortune and was heavily engaged in alchemical experiments in in an attempt to make the money back by creating gold. Oh. Sounds like a roller coaster. Yeah. Life is a roller coaster. Mm. As you can see. Life is a highway. At least this is someone who was unhappy and kind of deserved it. Well, we'll we'll find out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit early to be making judgments there. I right. Don't know. Maybe if he hadn't been unhappy, those kids could have lived. Yeah. Yeah. All hundred of them. It's a lot of kids. And families. Um, he was born in 1404. Kidless. And he was born in 1404. <laughs> it's the melodrama over. Yes. He was born childless families. Probably not. Kidless. Kidless, going through the world. Kidless. Talking about goats. Girls. Looking for. <laughs> Baby goats. I don't remember how we were talking. Listen. (laughs) Gilles Duray was born in 1404 in the Black Tower of the castle of Champotec. We should have known from the beginning. Of course. Both. Right. That's. that's He was born in the Black Tower. That's a pretty serious way to come into the world. Yeah. It's like lightning in the background, Mm. storm clouds gathering. God, that's so metal. I can't hold it. I can't. You've got to be I'm saying sorry. this the whole Crowley episode, I, I Brianna. You need to hold up. it in. I know, but like... Our I audience need... is going to be tired of hearing how metal everything oh, God. is. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm just going to go die. <laughs> Both his mother and father... Don't, don't, don't die, because we, we need you for the brief history. Both his mother and father died when he was 11, and he passed under the guardianship of his maternal grandfather, Jean de Crayon, a violent and morally suspect character just under 60 years old. They spent their time abducting relatives. All right. Yes. Oh. It's a good way to pass the time. Some bonding. You could play chess, checkers, 
or abduct relatives. It's just a fun family game to play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, I haven't seen you guys in so long. Let's what go abduct they, somebody. What would they do with their abductors? Okay, well, so now here is the most important abductee was Catherine du Tourar, who DeRay married in order to increase his wealth. Wait, uh, he got, they got married after though. he abducted her? Well, this is his cousin. He abducted his cousin and married her, Catherine uh, Did she do so does. willingly? Like, well, I mean, she was abducted, so she was a little under the gun there. But oh, okay, I didn't know well, if like that was just a fun thing. Stockholm like, syndrome. Nobody it, really got like married willingly in the yeah, medieval that's, world. You're that's always that's getting really married for political point. reasons. But these guys would abduct you first. So the other reason they would abduct you is so they could get like like ransom land from you. I was thinking more of like a surprise birthday party, but that's what I thought too. Or you know, like the final episode of The Office. Oh yeah. When yeah. Dwight and Angela are getting married. No, and, they would. And Mose goes and they kidnap Angela and throw her in the trunk of the car. So they would they would write letters back to their families and be like, "We need you to give us like the river next to your castle." Hey, Aunt Sally, yeah. guess who we got? <laughs> Little Joe. So we're in the midst of the Hundred Years' War, and Joan, a peasant girl from Domremy, has appeared at the court of the Dauphin Charles, uh, Prince of France, claiming that the voices of saints and angels have told her she must liberate France from the English, and see Charles gra- crowned rightful King of France. Uh, Charles's mother-in-law called on Jean de Crayon for assistance, and Gilles Dre ended up leading his grandfather's troops in the prince's cause. So Jean de Crayon, his grandfather, is pretty well connected to the French court, the rising French court. Uh, the French court, I, I guess, in war with the, the English and their pretender to the throne. Well, what came out to be a pretender to the throne. And this is what gets Gilles de Ray wound up in, in the whole Hundred Years' War conflict. He's presented at Vacalor when Joan first meets Charles uh, and is given charge of the troops that Charles gives to Joan to march with to Orléans. So Gilles de Ray actually commands the f- small force that Joan mm. brings up to Orléans to begin the miracle that she achieves there, mm. uh, breaking the English siege. You can say Gilles was doing the Lord's work then, huh? At this point in history. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> He was uh, very much in the service of Georges de la Tremouille, Charles's most powerful minister and a close relative of Duray. So Georges de la Tremouille is essentially, Tremouille. right? It's a pretty good name. I like that. That's what we'll call you from now on. Oh, thank you. Jean, John Tremouille. De la Tremouille. Jean, so, Jean de la Tremouille. Two Johns. Yeah, I think that's important. Cook at the end. Mm. <laughs> so it's, like yeah, it's all in the middle. It's a middle name. So... Um, what am I trying to say here? Uh, La Tremouille, de La Tremouille, or La Tremouille was essentially like the prime minister of France. So he was the power behind the throne. Uh, so he they had a what? prime minister at this point. Not real. I mean, I'm I'm using modern terms okay. to describe what his role was in the courts. Very powerful guy. He wore and the pants in the court. He did. He wore the, he uh, wore as opposed the... to the tights. Everyone else wearing tights, he's wearing oh, pants. The court mm. pants. He wore the court pants. So I have a clear picture. Now. He was concerned that Joan, um, or through Joan, there somebody might rise up to rival him in power, um, particularly with the breaking of the siege. Um, so he wanted to, so he essentially enlisted DeRay, who was a relative of his, to keep an eye on everything that was going on at Orléans to make sure no hero rose out of this to challenge him. Joan really wouldn't have been a contender for this because she was a woman. So there, she wouldn't have ever been able to assume a formal role of authority. But people associated closely with Joan or people who assisted with the siege might have rivaled him. So he was like, hey, cousin DeRay, Make sure not this doesn't happen. I um, want to continue to be in charge here. Very French. Very very French thing to do. Yes, it's more of a Scott thing to do. Uh, John, why are you, John has arbitrarily decided to attack Scotsmen. 
My aunt just got back from Scotland. It's a lovely country. She had a great time. It's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. My great-grandmother was from Scotland. Self-hating Scotsman. Uh, He fought alongside Joan as the French attempted to take a series of fortresses from the English, uh, including at the Battle of Torrell, where Joan was shot through the shoulder while putting a ladder up to scale the fort. De Ray gained a reputation for being recklessly brave and valiant in the face of the enemy. So basically, like, in the face of sure death, he would just scream and rage into the middle of the battle. Um, Mm -hmm. After breaking the siege, Joan insisted that Charles be coronated king of France, and Gilles was present with her, carrying the Holy Chrism, or unction to bless Charles the Seventh. I'm sorry, uh, what the was what? That? Uh, Riley, the, the chrism, the chrism, the holy chrism or unction. Uh, like an oil, a holy oil that you uh, put on. Um, it's you anoint them at baptism and confirmation. It comes in a chrism. Does it, it smell good? No, it's called chrism? chrism. Oh, it is the chrism. Yes, it doesn't. A chrism is. It doesn't I just come pictured in a the chrism is like the I don't know some kind of thing you swing around. No, the chrism is oil. the oil. What's no, no, it no. going? With the, we use those things for incense, not for oil. Oh. What's the unction? You should swing everything. It just comes it in like a little, con- just like a little, a little dish. The unction is the oil. The unction is the chrism. It's really good. It's the holy chrism. I love the smelling. And then when you baptize the baby, the baby smells like chrism for a few months after. Oh, that's a long time. It really does because the the chrism lasts. Well. Charles VII smelled like chrism for a long time. Oh, I love that smell. After I, would have loved, I would have loved the way that Charles smelled then for a long time. <laughs> On the day that Charles was coronated, Gilles de Ray was made Marshal of France, which is a, a pretty big military title. He's an important guy at this point. Not as important as La Trimouille. Still pretty important. During the subsequent attempt, attempt to take Paris back from the English, Joan was shot through the thigh. Uh, so Joan was shot a whole lot. And got right back on the horse. Career, yeah. <laughs> Just kept going. Eventually they had to burn her. That was the only way they could get rid of her. No matter how many times they shot her. Uh, and she asked to have DeRay by her bedside. So when the second time when she was shot through the thigh, she asked for him to mm. attend her. So romantic. Uh, well, <laughs> likely uh, it was out of respect for his bravery. So he had played such a major role in her various victories that she had respect for his where the, his how he comported himself on the battlefield. Uh, this was one uh, of the only solid signals we have of Joan's feelings about DeRay. So, sorry to dispel the romance rumors, but this is the one time we have any evidence that she liked him even a little bit. Oh, shucks. Uh, he but wouldn't he have liked been... her. He did like her. He was, yes, we'll get there. <laughs> he wouldn't have been the only one called to her bedside, uh, but she clearly respected him enough uh, to request to have him. Beyond that, we don't know how much she liked him or even to what extent she tolerated him. All we can be sure of is that they spent time together on the battlefield and shared some kind of mutual respect. It's possible that DeRay was part of an attempt to rescue Joan after she had been captured by the Burgundians and was being tried by the English at Rouen. So this is a sort of legendary um, attempt to rescue her that may or may not have happened because it is a legend at best. There's no historical evidence. He was involved in some military action in that region after she was abducted, but if this was actually an official rescue attempt, Charles VII would have had to have authorized it. And if you listen to our Joan of Arc episode, you'll know that Charles VII was notoriously unwilling to come to Joan's aid after her capture. Uh, so the Giles de Ray, Gilles de Ray rescue mission may or may not have been an actual rescue mission. It may have just been a military action unrelated to Joan. Mm -hmm. We don't know. 
We also know that DeRay had strong feelings about his experience at Orléans fighting alongside Jones. So whether or not he was involved in a rescue mission. We can say with some certainty that DeRay had strong feelings about his experience at Orléans fighting alongside Joan. So whether or not those strong feelings were for Joan herself, we can't be confident of. But the, the whole experience that he had with her meant a lot to him. We know this because he played an integral role in the staging of a pageant and play about the events in Orléans. He stayed in the town of Orléans for a year, from 1434 to 1435, and during that time he spent between 80,000 and 100,000 gold crowns. Which like crowns? Like literal no, 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 like crowns? No, like a word for coin. Like crowns. Uh, it's a word for coin. Circular. Ah. Not cylindrical. Oh. Uh, that would amount to as much as a billion dollars in today's currency. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, it was an inhuman amount of money that he spent. Must be a nice play. In one year. Oh, it was. The play, The Mystery of the Siege of Orléans, involved over 500 performers. Sources reported that DeRay provided costumes for them and a new costume for each actor at every single performance. Yes. And as if that wasn't enough, he provided drinks and delicacies for the audience to enjoy while watching the show. What a nice guy. And the show was free, right? Free. Wow. This was not a money-making venture. That's how he spent the billion. He's a philanthropist. So far. He, his lavish spending compelled him to sell off vast portions of his land holding. His lavish spending compelled him to sell off vast portions of his land holding, which was extensive until the point where he held only his wife's property, which he had to keep as a matter of custom. So he sold off everything but the land he traditionally could not give up. He was so strapped for cash that he ended up pawning a pair of gold candlesticks in July of 1435 to help meet his expenses. So he went from having a billion dollars to pawning gold candlesticks. And that's something we can have evidence of. Still had gold candlesticks, though. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> he probably had all that, like, old money stuff he could sell off. And that, right, he could just go through it. a while. Yeah. We might guess that these insane financial contributions to the theatrical staging of the Siege at Orléans had something to do with his guilt over the loss of Joan, that he hadn't done enough to keep her out of the hands of the Burgundians or to rescue her from the English. But... It could just as easily be an expression of his vanity. Orléans was the site of his greatest personal triumph, and he was paying to keep the glory days alive. I think it's important that he was spending manically, not purposefully, right? A billion dollars. And was he like a a character in the play? Like, did it glorify him? I, I, I imagine that it glorified him, but he wouldn't have acted in it. Yeah. As a lord. Yeah. Um... It's like he was trying to wind himself down to nothing, though. Like, the spending of the billion is sort of insane. Um, Like he's purposefully trying to wind down his resources. Uh, But why would he want to do that? The historian Georges Bataille suggests that this was just an exaggerated version of the standard behavior of a medieval lord of this period. Uh, I suspect that DeRay had a psyche at war with itself. Maybe he was bipolar. Maybe he's just manic and spent a billion. 
listen, I'm bipolar, and there are nights that I will order so much off Amazon, and then the next morning wake up and be like, what the heck did I just do? Or they'll come to my door. And you cancel your order. This is the last time oh I'll interject. Gosh. I do the same exact thing oh my when gosh. I'm bipolar. No so I think idea. it's just like excessive spending. No idea. But it would it, it would reflect also on his personal experience, right? Yes. Bipolar is not divorced from, from your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is my theory, uh, which I guess could go in line with the bipolar idea. He knew that his resources gave him a power which could bring tremendous pain to the world, and his spending was a way of undercutting the scope of the damage he would ultimately accomplish. Ooh. So he's trying, he doesn't trust himself with the money? There's some part of himself that's aware that he's going to do horrible things. Yeah. And so he's trying, because there's, (laughs) like, he's... pretty monstrous right we're we've already getting the sense that he's going to be pretty monstrous but imagine if he was monstrous already with a billion dollars yeah imagine the pain and he could cause with that those kinds of resources but but he wasn't but while he was doing this he wasn't monstrous not yet he's holding building uh, do does he are there little things like early on in his life that we see or is it like a big switch it depends on who you talk to. Um, I, I think that the grandfather and the way he was treated by the grandfather and his interactions with the grandfather, which were about abducting relatives. Oh, yeah. yes. oh right. That was a thing. Did. Yeah, that was how he spent his childhood days. So he would oh. have been aware of the sort of demons lurking in his yeah, head. Yeah, it makes sense. And the siege, the, the whole staging of the siege at Orléans, could, we could view it as a way of putting off these urges. Yeah. It's also the, like... Like choosing to like really back Joan is like maybe like that's like an opposite like right. target for his energy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then she dies. That he then... can put all of his energy into that. Yeah. Like if he good. was very obsessed with her. I, it, I think that his behavior after her death um, suggests that he was deeply troubled by her loss um, because she'd been so significant to the greatest experience of his life. Okay, let's get to the child murders. Mm. Mm. That's what I'm waiting for. Oh, this is going to make me so mad. Okay, no. The first children disappeared in 1432. A child of Jean Joudon, age 12, was apprenticed to a furrier, someone who works with fur. Hmm. He was last seen delivering a message to the castle at Machacoul, one of Duray's estates, where he happened to be staying at the time. A child of Jeanon Roussin, age nine, disappeared while watching some animals in the field near the castle at Machacoul. Earlier, he had been speaking with Gilles de Seal, a close associate and cousin of Lord de Ray, who had been wearing a veil over his face during the conversation. Strange. Gilles de Seal. Stranger danger. Yeah, sort of like um, the Scotsman Spadine, Gilles de Seal, mm. and uh, Henri- Henriette Poitou. These guys become sort of like the entourage who go out into the French countryside and abduct children. This is a medieval SVU episode, right. I just would like to say. And yes, veiled. He is wearing a, a black veil as he's conducting this. Or would have tipped the kid off. That's what the story says. Well, we'll get there, John. We're, we're going to get there. Um, <laughs> three more children vanished, but so far no one complained. The children were all members of the peasant class, and they feared the peasants feared retribution if their complaints became known to their feudal lord. So rather than rock the boat... They were just going to be like, oh, no, I guess the kid fell in the creek. We're not going to mention it. And who else would they have complained to? They, yeah, he's the authority. He's the power. <laughs> Gilles de Seal tried to put them off, uh, saying they'd been traded to the English as prisoners of war um, and that the English planned to use them as pages. But hmm. they hadn't been traded. 
pages. And there were no pages. It's Not the cover-up. It's the cover-up, yeah. There's a whole cover-up going on. Here. Gilles de Seal was only one of Duray's entourage, as I mentioned. Um, Poitou and Henriette, the two pages of Duray, um, who, Poitou was a particular favorite who frequently procured children for his master. In the later ecclesiastical trial in which DeRay and his entourage were tried for crimes against God and humanity, Poitou reported having a particularly intimate relationship with his master. How oh. intimate of a relationship? We're about to find out. Mm. Let's, uh, let's check in on the court. The deposition of Etienne Corlot, called Poitou, given October 17th, 1440. My lord performed the carnal act on me as soon as I had come to stay with him. I was afraid he might have me killed with a dagger if my lord de Sille had not intervened and said that I was a pretty lad and I would do better to make my lord de Ray a page. My lord consented and became enamored of me, making me swear an oath not to reveal any of these or his other secrets in any fashion. And there was also a woman, a crone named Perrine Martin, known as La Meffray, or the Terror. Oh, That's the coolest the nickname. Yeah, so That's she was another name. member of, of the entourage. Uh, La Mechre. Oh, you mean Perrine Martin. Mm. All Marine of those Martin. names. Like Gilles de Cille. Everybody rhymes. Yeah. She went around in a black veil. She led a nine-year-old schoolboy, a servant of the Comte de Etamp. Comte de Etamp. Everybody Comte really rhymes in this. <laughs> nice. Uh, to the castle at Machecoul, or perhaps simply brought his corpse in a sack after he had been murdered oh by the page God. Poitou to Duray's castle. That escalated. I don't... How are there so many people in on this? Like, that's just so crazy to me. He's way rich. He has multiple castles. Yeah, but... Yes, but to carry a dead boy's body in a sack. Perhaps also wearing a black mask or veil through the village. I know, And I like, know. how did that not arouse <laughs> suspicion? People, veiled people, coming up to little children on the daily, <laughs> talking to them, and then they're like, I wonder what could have happened to them. Surely not that veiled person yeah. that came Carry, by mysteriously yesterday. carrying a sack out yeah, of the town. Yeah, that child-sized sack. <laughs> Another 12-year-old she brought to see DeRay at his rooms at the Hotel de la Suze, where she was instructed to bring him on to the doorman at the Mashkul Castle. So in other words, she brought him to the hotel where frequently he stayed when in town, but the doorman was like, no, he went, went to Mashkul Castle. Um, in Roche-Bernard, uh, Poitou heard of a very beautiful 10-year-old living in the town, Oh my That's gosh. just disturbing. He went to his mother, Perron Lassart, and promised her that he would provide the boy with many advantages, keep him in school, and generally raise his station in life. He promised the mother 100 sous for a dress and ended up giving her four pounds slightly less. So this, this sort of Ouch. peeved her off. Yeah. I can imagine. So the next day, feeling cheated, she attempted to get her child back. She was like, this wasn't what we agreed. <laughs> I sold my child for more than this. Yeah, yeah, I only got four pounds here. So she approached the great Lord DeRay, but he ignored her. The child, he said, was well chosen and as beautiful as an angel. The child rode off with him on a pony beside oh. DeRay. Two months later, the mother complained of having had no news from her son, and one of DeRay's men told her that he had died crossing over the bridge into Nantes when the wind blew him into the river. Oh? So believable. What DeRay did with these children is actually worse than anyone, or at least most people, can easily imagine. So I'm going to just do a second warning here before we hear from DeRay himself, uh, played by the incomparable Brandon Walls. 
If there are children listening now, we strongly suggest that you either pause and return to this podcast after they've gone to bed, or plug in your earphones, or ask them to leave, or just skip ahead a couple minutes. Or sell them to someone. Don't do that. Don't <laughs> do that. But I mean, if you had that new dress. Yeah. Watch out for ladies with sex in masks. Do not sell your children. <laughs> what we're about to share with you is hands down the most disturbing thing we'll share this season, right in this moment. And it comes from DeRay's confession at his ecclesiastical trial in 1440. He gave two confessions. The first was out of court and was very general in its tone. The second was in court and filled in the gory details of what he'd mentioned in outline the day before. From the record of the hearing of the ecclesiastical trial, the in-court confession of Gilles Duray, Saturday, October 22, 1440. I, Gilles Duray, the accused, voluntarily and publicly before everyone, confess that because of my passion and sensual delight, I took and had others take so many children that I cannot determine with certitude the number whom I'd killed and caused to be killed. And I said and confessed that I had ejaculated spermatic seed in the most culpable fashion on the bellies of the said children, as much after their deaths as during it. On which children sometimes I and sometimes my accomplices, notably Gilles de Sile, Milford Roger de Brookville Knight, Henriette and Porteau, and Rossignol and Petite Robin, inflicted various types and manners of torment. Sometimes we severed the head from the bodies with dirks, daggers and knives. Sometimes we struck them violently on the head with a cudgel or some blunt instruments. Sometimes we suspended them with cords from a peg or small hook in my room and strangled them. And when they were languishing, I committed the sodomitic vice on them. That's horrible. I just... There are almost no words. Yeah, I don't... I just feel a little nauseous right now and angry. It's for this reason that he is so well-remembered. By well, I guess I don't mean positively. Yeah. Um, but crimes like this are unheard of, except in very rare circumstances. And so for so long. Like, it just went on. It seems like it just went on for so long. About and five years. Yeah, maybe yeah. eight years. Five to eight years. That's a lot. These acts of torture and sexual perversion are bleak enough, as Lucy's saying, in and of themselves, and they are deeply disturbing. But the second part of DeRay's confession uh, details acts that are, in my opinion, even more unsettling than what we've heard so far, if that can be imagined. And, and this is for a reason. Uh, this is my opinion here. The sexual gratification and medieval torture and execution are, for the most part, almost banal in the first half of the confession. We sort of get desensitized to them. I mean, um, you all won't be feeling that, right? Um, but as he goes through this, you know, we can feel the sort of familiar strains of things. But this is just my opinion. In the second part, we hear about actions that are not only violent and disgusting, but also eerie and bizarre. The murders go from a nightmare to a lunatic's waking terror. Which children dead, I embraced them and gave way to contemplating those who had the most beautiful heads and members, and I had their bodies cruelly opened up and delighted at the sight of their internal organs. And very often when the said children were dying, I sat on their bellies and delighted in watching them die thus, with Poteau and Henriette laughing at them. After this, I had the children burned and their cadavers 
turned to ashes. Right, do you see what I mean? Sitting on, like, like, what? Yeah, the first part is, like, gross and horrible and unpleasant, and then the second part is so weird. Like, it, it's was... like a, it's nightmarish. It's some dream world where these things are happening. It's just bizarre. It makes no sense, the behavior. No. I'm genuinely curious on how his brain got to that point. Where his... And then his pages sat there and laughed at him. As he laughed yeah. at the children dying. Uh, yeah, we can't forget that he's not committing these acts alone. In fact, yeah. he's surrounded by Confederates. Um, he's driving the acts in the narrative that he provides in his confession, and he actually wants to take uh, the lion's share of the credit and, and tries to uh, sort of give his pages a break. Um, but they're very much caught up in, in all of the violence and horror of this affair. Have you read, like, the whole confession? Mm -hmm. Like, is yeah. his tone, is he, like proud of this or is there shame he's, when he talks about it he's ashamed and he's trying to save his soul at this point oh. from excommunication oh. and he's trying to save his body actually from being burned but his execution is a foregone conclusion yeah but he burned all of those children and back then it was that if if your body was burned then uh your soul and your body wasn't on like judgment day, like the soul and the body wouldn't be reunited. Right, because there was no body to exactly. And so with. that makes me mad, though, that he believes that, right, and is trying to save himself from being burned. Yet he burned over hundreds of children. Well, yeah, like... So fully knowing that he was, he he believed that he was Can condemning I make this them. Worse for you. Oh my god. Yeah. The children's bodies were often disposed of in a similarly horrific fashion. Frequently, after they were burned, uh, their ashes were dumped in sewers and in pits. Ew. While in Vaughn, DeRay, Vaughn, which is an area where DeRay didn't really have a home base, he had a boy killed and then asked Poitou to dump the body in the latrines. And Poitou descended into the latrines in order to sink the cadaver and covered it so that no one might discover it. What a vile human being. And also, not only did he torture them, like, he wanted their torture to last eternally. He wanted them, after their death, It was a kind of, on. yes, it was a kind of, ultimate destruction that he visited on them. In 1439, he was apparently fooled by a woman claiming to be Joan of Arc. There were several of these in the years after Joan's death on the stake at Rouen. It's not uncommon for famous people who die unexpectedly or dramatically to have impersonators after the fact or conspiracy theories about the death, death itself. In our Joan episode, we mentioned Elvis and Hitler, but, you know, there's conspiracy theories related to the deaths of Kurt Cobain, Bruce Lee, Andy Kaufman, Princess Diana, Marilyn Monroe, the Kennedys, on and on, right? Who killed Kurt Cobain? Did he kill himself or did somebody, you know, inspire it? Bruce Lee was supposed to have been shot on a movie set when a secret bullet was snuck into a gun. Not exactly true. Andy Kaufman, people think he's still alive. You know, those sorts of things. So famous people dying in unusual or unexpected ways create an opening to try and make sense of the loss. And in that space, impersonators can emerge. So uh, we didn't do this on the Joan episode. I think it's appropriate to do it here because it's really an important part of DeRay's story. Let's go ahead and do a brief history of our Joan of Arc impersonators. There were several women who claimed to be Joan of Arc after she was burned at Rouen. Her executioners anticipated this by showing her ashes after she'd been burned, but this did nothing to discourage these doppelgangers from popping up. Yeah, they, they made it a point to make her as visible as possible during the course of her burning, so that there was never a moment where the audience was not fully aware that it was actually her who was burning. The most famous and successful impersonator was Claude de Armoise, who first appeared at Lorraine. Joan's brothers, Pierre and Jean Dulys. Jean Dulys. Lys. 
supported her claim that she really was Joan, either because they really wanted to believe that her sister, their sister was alive, she legitimately looked like Joan, or some combination of these factors. Yeah, yeah. Um, They they seem to have been persuaded, though. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like they were trying to pull one on the rest of the world. She really good. She or or she's just a you know an an unusually lookalike doppelganger. Well, she wore men's clothes, carried a sword, and rode a horse just like Joan, and lived for a while with the Duchess of Luxembourg. So anybody who would wear men's clothes, of course, and hang out with the Duchess of Luxembourg. What woman? (laughs) It's the hanging out with the Duchess of Luxembourg that was un-Joan-like. But she also danced, drank, and prophesied. Very un-Joan-like. Unlike Joan, she dabbled in magic in Cologne, which she got. Which got her excommunicated. Yep. Ouch. Anyway. <laughs> she married a knight of Lorraine and gave him two sons, but later left them and ended up serving De Ray. Thank you. I just like. Yeah, Jill's De Yeah, it took me a second there to realize what I was saying. <laughs> he gave her an army of his men to lead the royal cause of Charles the Seventh. Yeah, but... so she showed up and he was like, oh, cool, it's Joan. Joan's back. Here, have an army. <laughs> so he really thought she was Joan. Yep. But even her getting married, that's not a super Joan. Joan was never really in the. I mean, we also have to bear in mind as we're thinking about this. Uh, yes, maybe she would have stayed a virgin. I don't know. That's always the Catholic fantasy, isn't it? No, but she wasn't even <laughs> interested in men. Like, you go back at it, like, she really, like, so like you're when you read. She was a hard dyke? When you. Ooh. <laughs> maybe. I but when you so. read her. It's possible. Oh, people believed it she for a while. Husband. Oh, definitely. There's I a lot of writings on it. Uh, anyway, so um, on the subject of her looking like Joan, though, we have to bear in mind that some time has passed. So if you saw a sibling, you know, that you hadn't seen for several years, and then they showed up, you, you know, you might be like, oh, well, you know, you've aged a bit, so you look a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But if you're a reasonable approximation, yeah. you, you might let it go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're back. Yeah. But meeting Charles at Bourges, he discovered that the king had dismissed the girl as a fraud. Yeah, the king, uh, so the king meets Joan, and he's like, nope, not Joan. Mm. The real Joan had first persuaded Charles that she was sent by heaven by giving him a secret sign in private. History had not recorded what that sign was. It was only known to Charles and Joan. And it was the imposter Joan's mm-hmm. failure to know that the sign she showed, she sh- that the sign showed her up as a fake. Right, right. So Charles was like, hey, remember when we had that secret sign that you showed me? And uh, Claude here was like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Mm. He was like, imposter, mm. get out of my court. Sacre bleu. Mon dieu. Croissant. Okay. Croissant. This goes Tour de How many words can we keep going with this? I'm almost done, guys. Let's let her finish. Eiffel Tower. <laughs> okay. This goes to show just how much she probably looked like the authentic Joan. Yep. Yeah. True story. So uh, that's a brief history on the Joan of Arkham impersonators. <laughs> nice. Nice job. <laughs> Except on that word impersonators at the end. I think I botched that more than Olivia normally does. No, I think that was about right. Yeah. That's a literal family tradition is botching the really, brief history. Yep. That was really interesting. Wasn't it? Yes. This Joan was false, uh, but DeRay thought she was real and gave her that army to command without a second thought. Viewed alongside the elaborate staging of the Mystery of Orléans and their service together in the Hundred Years' War, it seems more and more likely that DeRay actually had feelings for Joan. Where was this chronologically in his life? Was he murdering children when this Joan showed up? Mm, probably. That's good. Okay. okay. Just clear. Glad we cleared that up. <laughs> do, wait, do, did you just say what happened to her, or did she get... 
She got no. She didn't get killed. She just oh. sort of like that was it. Like she. Like, you can't hang out with. Sorry, us you're not. You're not Joan. You you just yeah. tried out. to impersonate it. Go back to being Deadwood. anonymous. She had uh-huh. her five minutes. Yeah, your five minutes are over. I don't, yeah, apparently they didn't execute you for impersonating dead saints. Oh, they, well, she wasn't a saint yet. Yeah. She's just. They only want celebrity. truly not innocent while. people. Right. Okay. Let's talk about conjuring demons. Hmm. All right. In or around spring 1439, DeRay's chaplain, Eustache Blanchet, met an Italian cleric in Florence, the 22-year-old Italian Francisco Prelati, who... That is a very Italian name. Well, All these he, names are very French, and that's very Italian. He gets to <laughs> France, and they spoke. call him Francois, because <laughs> they, have to frank, they have to Francify his name, John. <laughs> mm. uh, what, is the, what is the name Giles Unfrankified? Giles. <laughs> That was easy. Gil. <laughs> Gil. 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 Good old Gil. Uh, yeah, Giles, like in Buffy. You know, Giles. Mm. Well, too We're bad at, for you. You're, you're, uh, you are falling out of your chair I, here. I'm getting very excited. Okay. So, uh, Prelati had been seen in the company of Nicolas de Medici, who is not a famous Medici, but... He's got the name. Uh, it's at this point that the story takes a distinctly occult turn. Thank goodness. Over wine, Prelati, not yet a priest, but rather a student of the priesthood, told Blanchet how he had studied how to raise demons with a physician in Florence named Giovanni da Fontanella. Fontanella mm, had so raised exciting. the princes of hell for Prelati, who appeared to them as 25 blackbirds, not in a pie. What? Later, there's no pie. In, you ever heard that? Twenty-five. Yes. Some 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 number of blackbirds are baked in a pie, and then it's opened, and they sing. Who sings? The birds. The demons of hell. The, de- <laughs> the princes of hell princes. sing. Not, they're not just lowly demons. Is this, is this, this is a biblical story? No, it's like a fairy tale, or it's like a rhyme. It's just a nursery like rhyme. Like bursting out of the pie, like. Oh. You guys don't know this? Do you know this one? No, actually. When the pie was open, the bird began to sing. Yes, I Isn't this, this a, some kind of dish for the king? No. Yes, Rob can confirm it's yes. real. There you go. <laughs> Brianna's got me. And she disappears again. Uh, later, uh, Prelati raised uh, the devil Bar. Oh, Prelati didn't raise him. Fontanella raised the devil Baron, uh, or Baron, who Prelati made a covenant with to give the demon a hen, a pigeon, and a dove each time he responded to a summons from the clerk. Blanchet had a standing order to bring any promising alchemist back to DeRay, and he persuaded the Italian to travel with him to Nantes, where Prelati had a relative. So yeah, he, he had that kind of money, where he just had a guy wandering around looking for people who did alchemy. So he hears this guy talking in a pub, and he's like, hey, did you just say princes of hell? Because we're into that. Could you come back with me to my dad's house? No. I know a guy. I know a guy, yeah, not dad. A guy. To my guy's house. (laughs) Maybe it is dead. Uh, He wrote to his lord uh, and master that he discovered this conjurer who may prove useful in DeRay's alchemical experiments, and they traveled back to the banks of the Loire, uh, and there DeRay sent his squires to fetch them and bring them back to the castle at Tiffage. DeRay had a long-standing relationship with alchemy, despite the fact that the practice had been outlawed. When Charles VII was due to pay a visit to one of his estates, DeRay had to quickly destroy his alchemical ovens for fear of being fined by the monarch. I'm sorry, his what? His alchemical ovens. 
you care to elaborate on that? Uh, so you like what you. What does your standard no. alchemical oven look like? Well, the the deal with the alchemical oven is that it's meant to turn your base metals into gold. So it's oh, where you go to do your chemistry. <laughs> just oh. about to say, it's a, a nice little like an easy bake oven. oven, yeah. Or an easy bake microwave. Only oven. with skulls on the top. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't oh, know that. I don't know if there are skulls. He was anxious to create wealth through alchemical means, my man DeRay. Uh, so anxious that the records of his occult exploits sometimes make him appear foolhardy and gullible. Blanchet had also brought DeRay a doctor named La Riviere, who promised to conjure the devil for him. They went to the woods, and DeRay and his entourage waited while La Riviere disappeared inside the trees to begin his invocation. There was a sound of clashing and banging on armor, and La Riviere returned to the edge of the forest where he had left DeRay and his companions. They asked, Hey man, what happened? And the conjurer said that while he was in the forest, he had encountered the devil, who had appeared as a cheetah, and walked right past him. But yes. I'm trying to hold this together, but said nothing. So a silent cheetah. The devil appeared as a silent cheetah. Why did he expect it to say something? (laughs) I guess cool then, yes. Why would the cheetah have to speak? But like, what do you get? Just roaming around. (laughs) Like you invoked the devil, I assume, for some purpose, and the devil showed up, but was a cheetah and just walked past you. Just wanted to ignore him. Also, like Blanchet told the rest of the story in his testimony during the ecclesiastical trial of Deray, his pages, and the priest. Uh, So let's hear again from the court, and this is now uh, Blanchet. The deposition of Eustache Blanchet, priest, given October seventeenth, fourteen forty. Lord Marshal Deray, Le Riviere. Myself and the others went to Pousange, where we gave ourselves over to merrymaking, and where we slept, and on the following day, La Riviere might claim to need certain things necessary for the invocations. And Lord Marshal Duray gave him twenty gold crowns or royals, and told him to procure whatever it was he needed, and return without delay, which the conjurer pr- promised to do. And he left and never returned again to Lord Marshal Duray, as far as I ever heard tell of. <laughs> Just can't get over the cheetah. <laughs> it was a cheetah. Of course it was a cheetah. What else? Would would the, he, how else would the devil appear to how Frenchmen? How did he know it was a cheetah? Oh, I mean, French how did he know the you cheetah know? was a cheetah? The devil. Yeah, how, what no, if the it devil. was just a random cheetah? I think <laughs> if you see a cheetah in but, France. And you also just summoned the devil. <laughs> I would like, you like, went into yeah. the forest and said, devil, come, and there's the but cheetah. But, like, what if there happened to be, like, a bird nearby that was Satan, and it was maybe, just, like, maybe yeah. it was a and cheetah. And it was like, a really elaborate joke. And the bird's, like, trying to, like, And why did he expect the him? cheetah to respond? Okay. Yeah. So DeRay's relationship with the Italian Prelati actually lasted much longer than the short affair with the imposter La Riviere. Prelati had boasted that he could teach any man alchemy in three months, and this is what had inspired Blanchet to introduce him to his master. In early summer, Duray, along with Gilles de Seal and his pages Poitou and Henriette, gathered in the lower hall of the great castle and drew circles on the ground with swords, making a series of signs inside the circles. Henriette and Blanchet carried incense and myrrh, aloe, a lodestone, and a great book containing the names of many demons and spells. That sounds nice. Lord Duray... <laughs> like and a great book. If you would just cut it off at, like, aloe... Myrrh and a great and the, book. It's like a night with Oprah. The coolest scavenger hunt I've ever right. heard of. Lord DeRay was left alone with the conjurer Prelati until one in the morning. Uh, Blanchet gave this report. Lord Marshal DeRay remained there with the cleric Prelati for half an hour or so by candlelight. I heard Francois speak these words, among other words spoken softly. Come, Satan. Or come, 
I believe, adding to our aid. I know nothing else that was said. He spoke several words that I wasn't able to hear clearly and cannot recall. And not long after these words were pronounced, a cold wind blew violently through the house. This frightened me and persuaded me that Lord Marshal DeRay and Perlati were invoking demons, and I left the house and went to stay with the innkeeper, Bouchard Menard, for seven weeks or thereabouts. The next night, they headed out to a field near an abandoned house. They carried incense, a lodestone, and the book, like you do book. for book club yeah. or, or for a scavenger hunt. Nice. Uh, they traced a circle in the ground using a knife and got inside of it. But despite mm -hmm. Prelati's injunctions not to, Poitou crossed himself. <sighs> Gilles de Ray gave Prelati a note to hand to the demon. <laughs> Come at my bidding, and I will give you whatever you want, except my soul and the curtailment of my life. Well, doesn't sound like he's sorry. All right on this. That's, um, he's not really willing to. The demon doesn't really want much else. <laughs> why would you go like you if, you're, if you're summoning demons? He does like, have a billion not gold prepared crowns. to go all the way. I mean, he had. That's my question. <laughs> right, at a hundred thousand. You don't um, get to be picky. Like you've as... already like murdered children. <laughs> you're all in. Yeah. There's no turning back at this point. As soon as they entered the circle, a great rain and a violent wind started up, and it became so dark that they had difficulty getting back home afterwards. Prelati attempted the same invocations in the lower hall, and the demon Baron or Baron appeared. But Gilles, uh, Gilles de Ray was not present for these invocations, and in fact he never had the opportunity to interact with any devils. In his room, Prelati was beset by a demon in the night. Blanchet and others were afraid to go in. Prelati survived the attack, but was ill for a week afterward, and the great lord himself attended to the sor sorcerer, refusing to allow any others into his room. He had Prelati confessed, and believed that the attack was the product of the group refusing to give the demons their due respect. Mm. I just want to imagine him being attacked by a cheetah. In his room? Yes. DeRay left for Bourges, but enjoined Prelati to continue conjuring in his absence. So I'm going away, but you know, see if you can get the demon on the phone while I'm gone. Uh, Baron returned while he was gone, of course, and gave Prelati some black powder and a piece of slate, which DeRay wore in a silver box around his neck for several days before <laughs> deciding that it wasn't doing him any good and gave it up. Oh. Uh. DeRay then returned to the castle at Tifage for the second great ritual of three that he experienced with Prelati. Prelati demanded gold of the demon, and he filled a room with gold ingots. Sort mm. of like crowns, but more ingotty. Mm. DeRay insisted that he be allowed to see inside this room, but when he approached, Prelati suddenly spotted a winged serpent as large as a dog in the doorway. Oh no, look! It sounded like that. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to sound like a bird or something. And this scared DeRay from the threshold. So he's like, look, there's gold over here. Come, Lord DeRay, and touch the gold. And DeRay's like, cool, I can't wait to touch this gold. He's like, no, stop, wait! There's a dragon, dog dragon. Don't come any closer. The great lord went and fetched a cross containing a splinter from the Holy Rood, because he was rich enough to have that. Uh, What's the, the Holy Rood? Uh, yeah. I actually don't know. What, what, what the is original, that for? It's the original deal. Oh, the original oh, cross? Yeah. The, oh, oh wow. we call it the true cross. Neat. Uh, and returned to try and see inside the room again. Prelati warned him not to bring the cross in, but DeRay insisted. Finally, gaining entry, he reached out to touch one of the ingots piled inside, only to discover that it was just a scrap of foil. Hmm. I love that. Oh, he got duped. Right, but Prelati was like, so it's much. only because you brought the cross in that it turned into foil. It was oh. real. He's got so you. much money. 
The Chaplain Blanche, what, who? Why is Duray he doing or? money, yes. money getting rituals when he already has Because he spent money. it all. He's down to selling candlesticks but and street corners. But he had so corners. much money. Like, he I used just, like, to. Do you know how much, he wants like, it back. There's one cross that they were oh, talking about. Oh, so you're about. saying that he should have just sold that cross. No, I was just saying, like, that's crazy. Like, yeah. th- like those things go on tour. He could have toured that around. He could have toured that cash. around. Yeah. Like, that is crazy. Made the 100,000 crowns. They're, and they're like, but they like split it. There's like this small. I saw one at the Basilica. It was like this tiny. Cool. Like they like they're but that costs so much money. Like yeah. this dude just bought one for himself. Just bought his own th- deal. I have another question though. Yeah. So, did the child murdering have anything to do with the alchemical stuff going on? Like Oh, we're getting there. Okay. Hold that thought. Okay. The chaplain Blanchet believed that the reason Duray was not succeeding with the demons, actually you're right on top of this, man. You're welcome. Was that he was not offering them the limbs of any of the children he'd been murdering. So the demon's like, you're holding out on me. Or depending on which stories you choose to believe, we could look at this the other way. Blanchet may have been the first to suggest that DeRay start murdering children in order to offer their body parts to the demons. So either he was murdering them all along and Blanchet was like, can you just give him some of those body parts? Or Blanchet was like, you know what you should be doing? Murdering children. I think the second one almost makes more sense. Because, like, why would you not just do that? But then all the rest of the crap he did with those kids. Does it make any No oh, demon okay. has ever requested, True. I think, in the history of demons requesting like, things. Listen we're, listen, we're demons, but That's this is still so... Jeray just went this is way <laughs> further. Demons aren't really that down for, like, excessive torture. <laughs> right, or like, all that weird listen, sex we're stuff. We're demonic. Yeah. That's probably why they didn't show up, is they were like, what's we're this gonna... guy doing? Prelati confirmed Blanchet's theory, saying that the demon would like a small bird, like a hen, a pigeon, or a dove, but would especially like the sacrifice of a child or two. Or a hundred. Yeah. We'll take a we'll take a dove or a child or two. The deposition of Francois Prilati, cleric, given October sixteenth, fourteen forty. In the hall at Tafage, the Marshal Del Rey and I performed invocation as I have described before, with the intention of offering and giving a hand, heart, eyes, and blood of a child to the demon if the devil baron would prefer it. The demon did not appear, which is why a little later I wrapped the hand, heart, and eyes in a piece of linen and buried it close to the St. Vincent Chapel within the castle's enclosure in what, to the best of my belief, was sacred soil. Prelati told DeRay that the demon's failure to appear could have been because of a lapse in the pact DeRay had agreed to with Baron. I concluded a pact with the demon Baron in the name of Marshal DeRay so that every year the Marshal would provide a meal to three people on three solemn feasts. Although he had done so at the Feast of All Saints, he had since ceased to honor his pact and this, I suppose, is why Baron refused to appear. Blanchet reported that there were rumors circulating about the murders, but no one did anything about it. Gilles Duray was a wealthy and powerful man, and the children he preyed upon were by and large from the peasant class. Some believe that Duray wasn't attempting alchemy with his child sacrifice, but rather creating a magical book. We'll hear hmm. from Blanchet. According to the public rumor spreading around Nantes and Clisson, Gilles Duray was killing a large number of children and having them killed, and was writing a book in his own hand with their blood. With this book, he planned to take all the fortresses he wanted, for with the book nobody could harm him. I saw the book myself, along with the priest Gilles de Valois. He was writing the ceremonies of his school at Machacoul, and I saw five or six leaves of paper with large borders on which there were written crosses, red signs, 
and red writing in his hand, which I presume had been done with human blood, considering, as I've said, he had children killed for the blood to write books with. Given the class differential between DeRay and his victims, these crimes may have been overlooked, except for the fact that DeRay, in his desperation, committed a political misstep when he tried to claim back land he had sold and broke into a church with an axe. Oh. I feel like De- even in modern times, if someone broke into a church with an axe, it wouldn't we'd be go like, over that's so well. weird. Okay. DeRay had sold one of his many estates, Saint-Étienne-de-Mermorte. Is that a marmot? What? Saint-Étienne-de-Mermorte. A marmot? A marmot? Mormon? They're a, a Mormon? No, mm. I'm talking about Mormon the rodents. rodents. Was Jules DeRay a Mormon? No, it's not a rodent. <gasps> Jules was a Mormon. Before no. Joseph Smith. <laughs> he was a guinea pig. He sold this estate to Geoffrey Le Ferron. Suffering from a violent kind of seller's remorse on the 15th of May, 1440, DeRay came back to the chapel on the estate during the Sunday service and wielding... During, during the during Sunday the service. service. Yes, absolutely. Why would you come at any other time? Uh, wielding a double-edged axe, demanded from Geoffrey's brother, the priest, Jean Le Ferron, that the estate be returned to him. He then threw the priest into the fortress prison uh, that his men had requisitioned, simultaneously offending the Duke of Brittany, who was responsible for maintaining order in the region and the church. The Duke find him 50,000 gold crowns and DeRay determined that he had to go and see the Duke in person. But first he had Prelati ask the demon Baron if the trip was safe and twice the demon promised that DeRay would have a safe return. Just your typical daily mass. Right? Mm. The Bishop of Nantes then publicly accused DeRay not only of the offense to the priest at Saint-Étienne de Mermorte, but now also of the results of a secret inquest revealing that DeRay had been murdering children and trafficking with devils. So it was this that opened up the whole inquest. If he hadn't committed this misstep with the axe on at a Sunday service, he could have probably gotten away with it. I feel like that happens a lot. Like, it's like some unrelated thing. Yeah, it gets you in the end. I just imagine that it's like so dramatic where Gilles just burst into the church with like a double-bladed axe and just threw the priest into a fortress prison. Yes, he did. People are screaming from the church, I'm sure, like as he's brandishing his axe. Glory days from the play. Is it he the the one with the black veil? The child-sized sax? Yeah. People well, are now, there's, now, there's now they're connecting involved. it. Yeah. Now they're yeah. saying, oh. And everyone around is like, yeah, like he took in my son and then he like, <laughs> got blown off a bridge. News of his impending arrest came back to Tiffage and Gilles de Seal gathered what money he'd amassed in anticipation of this day and hightailed it out of France. Duray, hoping for a reprieve, remained alongside Prelati, Blanchet, Poitou, and Henriette. On the 15th of September, they were all arrested. The three major charges against them were the murder of children, heresy for the invocation of demons and the practicing of magical arts, and violation of ecclesiastical immunity for imprisoning a priest, which got the whole ball rolling in the first place. The indictment accused DeRay of being responsible for the murder of 140 children over 14 years. Historically, there's no clear record of this number of victims, nor evidence that DeRay murdered any children before 13 Uh, 1432, which was eight years before the trial. So there may be some trumped-upness to these charges. He was charged with slitting the children's throats, torturing them, and practicing sodomy on the boys, disdaining the natural vessel of his female victims. So there were female victims, but he was charged in part with not sodomizing them. (laughs) 
on the 15th of October, if there were even were girls. We don't know that? Well, the, the, the trial makes a lot of claims that there is no direct evidence for. Mm. Mm-hmm. On the 15th of October, the men of DeRay's entourage began to confess their roles in these crimes. The tribunal threatened to torture DeRay in order to elicit his confession, and he bargained with them, promising to confess without the Inquisitor's usual inducements. Tortures. Mm. DeRay repeated his confession in open court the next day, begging that it be published in French so that the common people of France might learn from it, as opposed to the usual Latin. He was excommunicated, but begged on his knees to be reinstated, and his judges agreed. He asked to be executed before his pages, Poitou and Henriette, so that they so that they didn't believe that their master, who was responsible for all of their crimes, had escaped punishment. So he didn't want them to die first and think that he was going to get away. He wanted to die first. He's a weirdly, like, sometimes he's really weirdly honorable. virtuous yeah, yeah, and honorable. And then horrible. He's, like, really obsessed with keeping his soul. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Think, yeah. I don't think he gets to. On the 26th of October, followed by a large processional, Gilles de Ray, Marshal of France, was hanged and then put to the flame. But the church allowed his body to be rescued before it was reduced to ashes and interred on church ground, which is meaningful for all of the reasons Riley has pointed out. And you can take issue with the Inquisitors, right, for being more merciful on him than his victims. He, he was on his he victims. Didn't, he didn't yeah. bestow yeah. that on his right. victims, so why does he get to have that? But he rich. was rich. Yeah. So. But wait. He put on that great show, though. We all got, yeah. we all Remember, mm. remember that play? <laughs> remember? That food was so good. All those costumes. <laughs> it's a nice time. Uh, it, this is about to get uh, just a little bit stranger before we end today, because... And we don't usually do this because I discourage conspiracy theories. But bizarrely, yes. there is a theory that Gilles Duray is innocent. <gasps> Spooky. And in oh, fact killed this. nobody. What? Oh my gosh. There's a oh fair contingent of people who believe and make re- reasoned arguments that he is innocent of the crimes he's accused of. The novelist Gilbert Proutot produced a book arguing that DeRay was not guilty of murdering children and invoking devils, and a retrial was held in 1992 under the auspices of UNESCO that shockingly resulted in his acquittal. What? Yep. In 1992? He was acquitted? 1992, yeah. So it was a kind of like show trial. But so this is a little less than a conspiracy the theory because he was actually acquitted of this. In, well, by UNESCO in 1992. What's UNESCO? Uh, the United Nations, etc., etc. It's a... Uh, UNESCO. It's a... Uh, yeah. What's that? What's their deal? They they like they like preserve sites and stuff. They're yeah. cultural. Okay. Cultural. But so in, so it's less of like some dude on Reddit. Cultural preservers. I thought this was like yeah. some Reddit theory. No 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 no. This is um, this is for reals. Wow. Uh, but uh, I I am gonna consult uh, an internet expert on this because I, I had to fish around for the arguments that are made in Duray's defense. In her article, uh, Gilles Duray and Me, Margot Juby. Oh, uh, oh no! Wonders why the details of the depositions given by Poitou and Henriette fiction? are eerily similar. Kind of. Um, both report. Uh, so, so why are she says why are Poitou's and Henriette's um, depositions so alike? They both report that they couldn't identify the exact number of Duray's victims who had to be disposed of in the tower in Mashakul, but they both guessed that they were between thirty-six and forty-six. Oddly specific. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them. Didn't have an exact number, but both of them said it's between 36 and 46. First two numbers that pop in my head, 36 and 46. Did they talk to each other? Uh, This makes it seem like they were coached 
or that their answers had been provided by their inquisitors. Do you see what I mean? The 36 to 46 makes it feel like the answers had been given to them in advance. It's also possible that the extreme perversity of these events, in my opinion, had left a mark on their memories. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're coming back with the same words and the same ideas may not be so strange, but the 36 to 46 is definitely weird. There's also the matter of DeRay's hundreds of victims leaving no trace. Like weird in medieval France, right? Before, like, acid. Yeah. Despite the apparent rumors circulating about child murder in DeRay's various estates, according to witnesses, and you guys all pointed this out already, parents continued to send their children to his castle to solicit alms or serve as pages. Weird. Yeah. Why would they do that? And, I mean, it wasn't like there's these huge villages. Like, we're, yeah. like, every, like, we're not around. People gossip. knew people. Yeah. People saw the people in the black masks. <laughs> we're going to get to them. Recall that DeRay began his supposed crimes against children in 1432 and wasn't put on trial until eight years later. His final victims would have been killed within months, if not days, of his arrest. It seems strange that the good people of Nantes never caught on. And what about the bodies of all those victims disposed, sometimes haphazardly, in latrines? Why wasn't there any physical evidence of the crimes he'd been accused of? Weird. Yeah. Another point is that he was accused of killing children at times and places when he and his entourage were far away and incapable of committing the crime. On the 12th of April, 1438, for example, the eight-year-old son of Michaud and Guillaumette Bouer went begging at Machecoul. The following day, alms were being distributed at Machecoul, and father and mother went. The mother was watching the animals on the estate when someone approached her. He was a large man dressed in all black who I did not know. He came to me and asked me, among other things, where my children were and why they were not watching the animals alongside me. I told him that they had gone begging at Mashakul and that I had not seen them since. On that, he left me and he vanished. During the course of these events, DeRay and his entourage were at his castle at Tifage, not at Mashakul. Two subsequent reports of vanished children in May were also blamed on him, even though he was at another estate. There's two angles to consider here. First, there's an awful lot of children dying in Mashkul. How common was it for a child to die or disappear mysteriously in this period? Juby suggests that these kids could just as easily have been picked off by thieves on the road, and the guilt was being laid at DeRay's feet in a kind of piling on, the same way that a witch could be blamed for anything that went wrong in the village, from milk turning sour, to a cow aborting a calf, to a man failing to get an erection. But, roving thieves were not a main cause of death for medieval children. Fun fact. Disease, famine, work-related injuries, and war were all more regular causes of death. So the roving thieves theory is, is not a great one. Dressed in all black. Yeah. <laughs> DeRay's victims were all between 8 and 16. This is another point against this. They're healthy. Uh, it's a more robust age and less subject to sudden and inexplicable death, which generally visited medieval children before the age of 5. Mm-hmm. And according to their parents, they disappeared mysteriously. They didn't go off to war, and they didn't contract the plague. They disappeared. They went begging for alms, or they were hired as a page, and that's the last we heard from them. It's also like there was a bunch of different people dressing and, like, veiling themselves so easily, like, it could have been that group, and maybe he just wasn't there for that particular torture session. We're getting closer to the veils, I promise. Okay. It's coming. The veils. If DeRay is innocent... It's more likely that these children never existed at all. 
birth records were not kept well at this period, and so if you wanted to claim that you had a missing child, it was difficult to prove one way or the other if you had ever had a child in the first place. This suggests a conspiracy on the part of DeRay's enemies, either to make him a scapegoat or more likely to get his property passed on to his next of kin before he could piss it all away. This is the second angle that I mentioned that emerges from the story of Madame Bouleur and the large man dressed in black. You may have noticed, Lucy, the repetition of the black veil in the stories and abductions mm-hmm. carried out by Gilles de Seal, which you guys had a, some fun with. Uh, and the old hag nicknamed the terror. If you want to be inconspicuous, as you've pointed out, while abducting children on a country road, leave your veils at home, please. These people are cartoonishly villainous. Mm-hmm. So much so that a fairy tale, the story of Bluebeard, ultimately grew out of the story of DeRay. I mean, it sounds like Snow White, the old hag. Like yeah. in a black veil, like think of like the like think of the witch from Snow White coming up with the apple. Like she's wearing this black cloak. Yeah. Hey, pretty lad, want an apple? <laughs> the title character of Bluebeard is a French nobleman who has been married many times, and his wives have mysteriously vanished. His unusually colored beard puts off most women, but he holds a party where he meets a young lady, and they hit it off. At first, I found the blue color of your beard unattractive. Also, the fact that all of your previous wives mysteriously disappeared and are now presumed dead. But since we've had the chance to talk, your beard doesn't seem quite so blue anymore. And my missing wives? I was so busy thinking about how blue your beard doesn't seem anymore that I forgot all about them. Let's get married. Okay. He tells her he must go away on a long trip and gives her the keys to every room and vault in the house. Here are the keys to every room and vault in the house. But there is one closet you must not open. For if you open it, I will be filled with wrath. Sounds unpleasant. It is. But his new bride's curiosity got the better of her, and one night while her husband was away, she found herself standing in front of the forbidden door. The closet door. Why am I hesitating? It's only a door. But he was so stern when he said I should never open it. What unhappiness might attend me if I disobey him? But should a husband have such secrets from his wife? Should there be such a closet as the separating two whose souls have been joined in everlasting bliss? I will take up the key. It's simple enough. I will take up the key and open the door. Why does my hand tremble so? That stench! What am I looking at? I might open a window. The floor. Something sticky and thick, a dark, red-like clotted blood, and this heap. It's a corpse, a, a pile of human remains, all women. The faces of the wives who came before, Bluebeard, what horrors have you committed here? What unimaginable horrors? This story, recorded by Charles Parot, was supposed to have been inspired by the historical events surrounding Gilles de with the vault of murdered wives mirroring the tower full of children's bones disposed of by Henriette and Poitou. But the fact that the scores of murdered children had been swapped out for the murdered wives is telling. Although murdered and maimed children are a hallmark of fairy tales, especially French and German ones, the gross detail of what DeRay confessed to doing with his victims is beyond the limits of even the goriest Grimm brothers tale. We could wax poetic about the deep-seated taboos of sexually abusing and murdering children, but that, in many ways, is the point. The extremity of the horror is what makes it difficult not to believe. Who among us could could concoct such a terrible tale, even under torture? 
Still, it's possible that DeRay's inquisitors invented the story for him, feeding it to him line by line to regurgitate. But then why or even how could he confess it twice, once out of court and once in court? This performance seems to suggest a man anxious to unburden his soul. For the historian Georges Bataille, Gilles Deray is an unfeeling monster, incapable of loving anyone or anything. But the primary sources don't really bear this out. Whether his vanity is mixed up in his feelings or not, Deray clearly had a meaningful connection with Joan of Arc, one of the most lauded saints in the medieval world, and a truly self-sacrificing and humble person. Not only did he fight alongside her, but he spent a fortune portraying the miracle she helped bring about at Orléans, and was quick to employ her imposter when he thought she'd returned. He also appears to have had some affection for the peasants on the estates where he lived. According to Blanchet's testimony, he said confession and received the Eucharist one Easter Sunday morning among parishioners of little means. The poor parishioners, seeing their lord enter, wanted to leave, fearing they would dishonor him, but he commanded them to stay and take communion alongside of him. Whether at the command of the demon baron or no, Prelati and others report that he fed and washed the feet of poor peasants on a semi-regular basis, and he arguably shared a mutual, sometimes erotic affection with his page, Poitou, the, the carnal act. For Gilbert Proutot and Margot Juby, he is an innocent man wrongfully accused. His trial is often held up against Jones as another trumped-up show trial for political ends, which, you know, is possible. But the politics are far muddier here. We could believe with Margaret Murray uh, from our Joan of Arc episode that he was a scapegoat in a secret pagan religion, or that, like Joan, his confession was coerced. But Joan argued with her judges and only confessed very reluctantly, recanting almost immediately and then facing the flame. DeRay confessed not once, but twice. He was anxious to avoid excommunication and to have his body preserved, if not his life, from the executioner's flames. Personally, I don't think DeRay is guilty of everything he was accused of, but I do believe he was guilty of something. In the murkiness of medieval history, whatever that something was is probably lost forever. As I often do, the best I can offer is to leave the final truth up to you. He washed their feet and then stole their kids. Yeah. That's More complicated your, the creatures. Soul perspective. Well, that's what he did. He was, you know, that he stole the peasants' kids and he'd also wash their feet. He obviously had like a like a strong moral system. In some twisted sense, I guess. Well, like lawful yeah. evil. You know, like it definitely like there but was a system. But his it moral wasn't... system didn't align with what he was doing that's the thing it's not yeah. that he 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 wasn't justifying what he was doing or what he, he did at the end like his moral system or, you know was against everything that he was doing. i think of it slightly it as, as a wrong yeah, yeah. Uh, but it obviously in his head i feel like it was like skewed like he like yes. this is right i'm sure he didn't do you know what i mean mm -hmm. like he was able to justify or did he bad or did he in that way revel in it being like revel in it being oh yeah wrong. maybe he liked the fact that it was Ted because it was uh, as you point out Riley very wrong not yeah. just uh, wrong in this life but in the next it just, he justified until violation. he justified it until it was pointed out and then he recanted it perhaps I and can't even say. when he was in like the full weight of it all and dealing with the demon he still wouldn't um, allow the demon to take his soul like that was 
off the table completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's just so, it's such a crazy. He's an interesting dude. So ends the confession of Giles, Gilles DeRay. Do you know the magic words, Brianna, to um, close this out? I do hereby uh, close this meeting. You of, adjourn it and declare I adjourn, it closed. I adjourn and declare closed this meeting of alchemical actors until the... Such a time. Such a time. As we... Uh, John Helper. As we get together. As we get together to do this again. That didn't happen. That was, that was I okay. skipped something. Yeah. Wow. Another literal family tradition is botching the ending... Ceremony. We just botch everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, let's see if we can get everybody. Uh, Brandon Walls played the uh, uh, unenviable role of uh, Gilles Duray and and spoke all of the grossness of his confessions today. Uh, We had Jacob Wheatley as Blanchet, Shannon Landers as Prolati. We had James Kaplangis as the uh, Bluebeard character uh, opposite Brianna, who played the girl the wife is there anybody else I'm missing I was a person oh we had, we had Lucy I was a mom Lucy was the the mother and uh, Hunter Hunter Sheilar was oh, yes. uh, playing our uh, Poitou uh, in our discussion we had Riley Claxton and Lucy Bond oh, thank you okay there you go There you go. I was waiting for you to say <laughs> something and you just looked at me but yes, they didn't hear you correct. look at me that is my name John Cook top of the morning Okay. It is approximately 7 o'clock at night. It's morning somewhere. And John has officially joined our crew of discussants. So Yay. welcome, John. Nicely done. Woo. You've survived your first episode and the, the grossest longest. and scariest episode, I think, yet. I just had a nice stretch. It'll be time to beat. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to beat this one. Okay. Uh, so um, after this now, something to look forward to. Uh, we are going to begin our two-episode series continuing on the theme of black magic on Al Esther Crowley. Oh, we're doing hmm. two episodes Two on episodes. The first episode, we will be looking at uh, the Book of the Law that uh, was revealed to him in Egypt. And uh, the second episode, we will be uh, exploring his wanderings in the desert and his confrontation of the demon in the abyss. So we look forward to seeing you again for our next episode of Occult Confessions.